This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning, this is Frida Liu and you're listening to Enterprise. Nicole Ng is the CEO of X Inc Group, a family food business that she successfully transformed and modernized, turning into a market leader at a very young age. And despite being in a male-dominated environment, she has succeeded and is a strong believer in female empowerment and gender parity. She's also on a mission to reduce food waste in Singapore through the first and only food bank, the Food Bank Singapore, which she co-founded. Her work has a huge array of awards and was recently made a YPO Global Impact Honorary for efforts in tackling the issue of food waste in Singapore. Good morning, Nicole. Hi, good morning. I've, I've been reading a lot about you and your journey is so interesting. But, uh, you know, how has your journey been in managing X Inc. Group? I think it's been stressful, to say the least, if I can be very candid about it. Um, I joined shortly before the last pandemic. <laughs> and so, you know, I've, I've been here one pandemic ago uh, and I think the market has been evolving very quickly. The stresses that I've been facing lately is um, how do I continue my grandfather's legacy, right? I mean, he started the business in the 1930s. And so I, I carry this weight upon myself uh, and um, hopefully we can survive for another 100 years or so, maybe not in the same shape and form, but I, like all businesses right now, we have, we've had to pivot, evolve, innovate. Um, but it's been a very interesting journey. And I think I like it because um, we are basically nourishing people's bodies, right? I mean, we're in the business of food distribution. And uh, I'm enabling the chefs to cook a better meal um, and enabling consumers, you know, to put a meal on their tables. So I think it's a, it's a relatively meaningful business. And if we do it well... Just like any other form of sustenance, uh, the food business should be able to continue until the day that humankind just pop a pill, uh, which I don't know when that will, be, that will come. Yeah. And then I'll ask myself, what's the point of living? Yeah, exactly. Maybe a nasi lemak pill or a miro boost or something. Yeah. So uh, just a little bit about your, your grandfather. When he started the business, what, what was that business? The form yeah, so um, uh, basically he came to Singapore for survival, right? Um, uh, I mean, in China back then in 1920s and 30s, it wasn't exactly the best time. So after his first wife passed away, um, he was left with two daughters. And so he left one of my aunties, the oldest one in China, which I don't know, I, I, I doubt she's alive. But she brought he brought the younger one with him. In a, you know, it's a typical story. He came in a boat, you know, nothing else but clothes on his back. And uh, basically coming here to, to see if there's anything that he could do. So what he did was he started a food distribution business from a small shop house. And he started peddling food products to the roadside hawkers. And uh, subsequently, I think maybe a, a year after arriving, he met my grandma, my ama, and they had nine children. Um, and my late father was uh, the second youngest of this nine children that he had. So it was a great, um, I don't know how they did this family planning or no family planning. It was like three boys, three girls, three boys, all one year apart and all brought up in this small shop house, right? Um, but, but I mean, back in the day, you just, you just make it work, you make it happen. Yeah. Right, as, as you do back in the day, right? Because there was no internet. Uh, so, okay, now now tell me about the, the food bag and, uh, you know, how how that came about. Yeah, so um, 
I, I've had I, I had to go back to my um, family business um, history. Uh, so like most people, when you read about a family history or family business, you would think that she's got it easy, right? Like because you know everything should be smooth sailing, you know, like third generation already. Uh, everything is hand me down, you know, all the successes riding on the coattails of people from before. Um, but I think our family had has quite an eventful and uh, interesting. Journey. So my, my grandfather started the, the business, you know, uh, from one kilogram of green bean at a time, for example. And then uh, we re-established ourselves in the 70s by moving into Western food distribution. So from Chinese distribution, we went to Western. And um, my late father actually, actually was a very entrepreneurial man. I, I think um, to me, he's one of the heroes that I look up to for the spirit of entrepreneurship. And um, he was very interesting because he was a school dropout at 15, no O-levels. Um, and then in the 80s, right, he really started um, our big trading business. So he, he dealt with everything from cigarettes and alcohol to movie making, seafood trawling. Uh, he was building bungalows at one point. And in the early 90s, we basically built uh, an empire of 250 million US dollars, which is valued about a billion dollars in today's terms. For a small uh, Singaporean SME, um, to have 40 companies in 25 countries was relatively unheard of in the very um, late 80s and the early 90s. Then came the 97 Asian currency crisis where um, our family went bankrupt, right? So my, my dad basically lost it all through, you know, uh, over-diversification. And um, I think it was a very interesting time for us because I was there when the banks came to seize the house. Yeah, and you have 30 minutes uh, to pack what you have and, and everything else was the bags. But my dad could ring fence the small food distribution business that my grandfather had. And um, so it was just back to basics kind of, you know. Uh, but And so even now when I look back, um, I have to thank my parents a lot for um, giving me a, a, a good head on my shoulders, right? But we, we had a very comfortable upbringing no struggles, but I would say that we were not spoiled. And that made us um, the kind of business people that we are today, a little bit more resilient, knowing that if things come fast, they can leave you very fast as well. So I told my brother before that if we ever manage to revive Yeye's business to a certain point where we are comfortable, we wanted to give back to society. And so therefore, the idea of the food bank came quite naturally to us. We were... Um, kind of researching it for I think close to five years before it was even started in 2012. And so we say, hey, Singapore is very affluent, you know, uh, and we're a small enough country to be able to feed everybody, right? So unlike Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, for example, where geographically it was difficult to identify even the underprivileged, in Singapore it was easy, 30 minutes, right? You can go from island to island, right? Point to point. So that's when the idea came about that, number one, Singapore was the world's most food secure nation. In case if any of you didn't know, um, we hardly grow anything. We grow 10% of everything that we consume, but yet we throw away 30%. So being an aggregator or food distributor, um, we really felt that we had to do a lot more to reduce food wastage. Then the other thing was that um, having joined the business in 0203, and uh, back then, the palm oil prices, I remember the vegetable oil was like $11 for a tin. And then now the prices are like 28 bucks or like $30, right? And definitely the income levels at the regular folks, it didn't double or triple. So how does cost of food 
affects the everyday person. So we said that we really need to bridge the gap. So we started the food bank um, with a simple thought of redistributing excess food, number one. And secondly, our mission is to get rid of food insecurity in Singapore by 2025. So the idea was really just me and my brother wanting to give back because we felt kind of comfortable right now. And um, the entire program just basically exploded uh, out of proportion. Um, but we also realized something, uh, Frida, because as business people, um, we had a lot more say rather than just being a ground up. So there are plenty of young people of like, you know, um, um, sometimes people in their 30s and 40s, they think of starting a charity as a society, but it's very different if you're just a pure society. And we found our voices being a business because people will listen to you like, okay, she's got something legit to talk about. Right, right. So, so it's so interesting when you talk about food insecurity, and I wouldn't, you know, like I wouldn't say food insecurity equates to Singapore, but there is a, there is a issue. So it's very interesting how you look at not food wastage and make sure that it's distributed properly. But I'm sure because of the pandemic, it's like wow, suddenly it's so needed. Yes, and um, it's amazing to me. Um, everyone thought that, you know, Singapore is like a picture-perfect scenario, right? Who would have thought that there would be people in need, especially for a lot of the expats who doesn't roam around our government housing area? You know, um, they were quite surprised, you know, at the level of help that was uh, being needed. So just to give you some statistics, in 2020, we gave out the most amount of food that we've ever done in our nine-year history. So it actually hit 1,600 tons of food that's being redistributed in 2020 alone. That's quite a lot. Um, and the other thing was during our mini um, circuit breaker, as we call it, our mini lockdown last year, um, because the children couldn't go to school to get free food from the canteens, right? We, we started getting schools from principals, from teachers, and even from the Ministry of Education to say, hey, how do we get food to the students that's living at home? And then when you go to the students' home, then you also realize that they are not alone because the elderly stays with them. You know, they have other siblings that may not be on the school pocket money fund, for example. And so we've had to help the extended family as well. So the lockdown that we had last year, our circuit breaker as we call it, um, really surfaced a lot of issues. And the other thing, interestingly, in case some of you know and to the listeners out there, right? Um, we have a lot of people reaching out to us that lives in private property. So from the condominiums, the landed property. So in Singapore, because only 15% of the population lives in a private and landed property, right? Um, we were very surprised. So in fact, a lot of the older folks that are sitting on a, a good plot of land, for example, or a great size property, they are not able to liquidate their wealth, but their bank account is literally close to zero. And these are the people that doesn't really get help. So because the Singapore's um, uh, social fabric is not, uh, or the social aid system is not perfect either. So we, we, we took on that role to identify some of these pockets of people. And so now we're actually working with the government to see how do we address these people. If they have problem putting food on their table, I'm not talking about medical or anything. Uh, so this is really an issue for us because in Singapore, we're very lucky. You can buy from a hawker center a $3 hot meal. 
But with most industrialized first world countries, it's very difficult to get a hot meal for three bucks, right? But in Singapore, we can. And um, so what the pandemic does is it has become a equal, uh, equaler or equalizer, so to say. It has leveled all the problems to be on the same playing field. If you face a, uh, an everyday problem, whether it's a health issue or eating better, the, the problem has all been surfaced up. Right. Because of this, right? I mean, the 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 silver lining in a way. Correct. You know, otherwise, they'll just get buried as well. Because like you were talking, to me, it was a surprise. Like with a private property, but yeah, they probably don't have their kids with them or they have kids they don't care. Exactly. There, but, All right. like, but then you say, how can living in a big bungalow have issues? But there are other, other things, you know, right, that comes about. But uh, we could go on about, I, I really want to talk to you about a, a survey done by the uh, YPO. But we'll discuss that in just a moment. I'm here with Nicole Ng of XN Group and the Food Bank Singapore. Stay tuned to Enterprise BFM 89.9. Backing Feminist Movements, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning, this is Frida Liu. You're listening to Enterprise. I'm here with Nicole Ng, the CEO of XN Group and the Food Bank Singapore. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about the company she runs and the work that she uh, is doing with the Food Bank in Singapore. Now, I know you're also part of uh, YPO, right? And in the recent YPO gender parity report, they found that while 51% of male respondents knew early in their careers they wanted to be chief executives, only one third of female respondents knew. So, um, a little bit, maybe you can share with your perspective as well. And why do you think we need to empower women to feel this is something they can aspire to? I think um, on a personal level, um, because the survey was done across um, different countries, so um, therefore maybe um, the, the women surveyed will also have like different backgrounds. So in Singapore, we've had it lucky, right? Um, everything is pretty equal, but there are really some other countries where um, women play second fiddle, even in terms of family businesses or taking over a business. So I, I think we have to remember the backdrop where the survey was uh, done. But um, on a personal basis, I also feel that sometimes females, um, we tend to uh, be quite responsible and, and think of ourselves as caregivers in totality. You know? So, I don't think career is, is the pinnacle of everything. And and I, I think this survey has been quite interesting because it also shows the psyche of women. It's yeah. not about opportunities, I feel. It's also about how we think. Because even as a, as a young child, I remember, you know, um, I will have to at some point look after my parents, my grandparents, you know. So we take on the caregiver's role as well. And so sometimes we may have other agendas in our everyday to-do list. And it's not just the guys where, okay, I have to climb the career ladder or I have to be someone big. And it doesn't just necessarily mean that we don't have big ambitions, but I think women sometimes just have a bigger heart or many other checkboxes that they have to look after. And maybe so that's why at a younger age, they also feel that, um, you know, being a CEO doesn't necessarily rank highly on their to-do list. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I, if you, I guess if you compare with your brother, just uh, different viewpoints, right? Yeah, just, just different viewpoints. But um, I, I, I guess I was ambitious from young, and uh, but I've never felt that I had to succeed the business either. 
you know, I, I just felt like I wanted to be here to maybe support my dad or support my brother. Actually, I was going to go out to look for a, lo- a job anyway because, you know, of the family situation that it was in. But um, I, I think just based on the survey alone, what was going to be important is equal opportunities for both boys and girls. Because I've got male friends as well that actually told me that I actually would very much like to stay home, you know, or or do something that is not as stressful in the work environment. And now, you know, society still paints a different picture where if the, if the guy stays at home or do something less career-minded, like be an artist or something, you know, it's it's not, it's, it's sometimes still being frowned upon. So I think it's equal opportunities for both sexes, yeah. Okay. Another question here is that uh, female chief executives are more likely to face balancing respect with likability, 30%, and overcoming others' preconceptions about me, 20%, than their male counterparts, right? In contrast, only 9% of male chief executives have had to overcome preconceptions. Now, is this self-inflicted as well? You know, this need to be liked. Yeah. Um I think ladies and women, we we tend to be a little bit more perfectionist by nature. So I think from young, we've had certain expectations on ourselves, you know, whether it's um, society or I, I think it's internal. So we, like for myself, I just felt that I have to look good. I have to carry myself in a certain way. You know, I, I need to be able to command my family, you know, and then still being able to be a, a career woman and have a, a, a great um, business track, right? And over and above that, like, hey, do my employees like me or do my teammates like me? You know, do my colleagues like me, right? So I think this is a very uh, personality or gender-skewed characteristic to a certain extent. But it also stems from the fact that maybe most women sometimes um, have a slightly lower self-confidence or self-esteem. So I, and and I see that a, a very... I just see that in my girls, for example, but I, I, I really, really feel that sometimes DNA has a part to play uh, where we expect a lot more from ourselves. We are a little bit more critical about ourselves, but it's also because um, we we view ourselves very differently and DNA has a huge part to play. I mean, some of the guys, right, they don't care. you know. And the best part is that what I have to say is that we, we allow our likability to linger in our minds. And the and the guys don't really bother, you know, after a beer or after they watch a soccer match or something, they forget about it. Right. I like this like, okay, to hell titi with you, you know, I don't care if you don't like me. But girls were there to think a lot more about it and it festers in their mind. Oh yes, of course now we, we, we can drop it off much easily as we evolve, right, as a species. But I really find that the males have a way of like, you know, okay, Let's just drop it. And then the next day, they can be pals again or they can be friends again. But we women sometimes take it a little bit more personally. Yeah. Okay. I want, I want to just uh, on that. So interesting. So what was it like in terms of your father uh, treating you and your brother and now you treating your children? What, 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 you know, what if you learn from that and how are you making sure that, yeah. that you're, you're, you're uh, leaving with your kids? So in, in my family, it was, uh, we were born during the Stop at Two campaign when uh, Lee Kuan Yew was trying to control the population. Um, and so my parents were blessed with, you know, one boy, one girl, right? And I was the eldest in the family. Um, and I was actually my daddy's pet. And then my, my brother was my mommy's pet, right? So I was um, brought up in a household where my dad made me feel like I could do anything. He basically empowered me and he... 
And both my parents didn't put a lot of emphasis on just grades alone. So from a very young age, I remember like five or six years old when um, I started developing my leadership skills. It was my parents who say that, you know, go and do everything that you want to try. It doesn't matter if you fail. You know, even my late maternal grandmother um, uh, told me that, you know, the world is your oyster, you know, and, and for her to be fully uneducated, she told me, because she saw that in me from a very young age, that I was going to be the busybody that I am today, they allowed, they, they gave me that platform to experiment, to learn, to fail, you know, and I developed my skills through failure, you know, and, and to be the leader that I am today. So I must say that my dad um, dealt with me very differently. The, the fact was that he saw me as being the driver and the leader in the family business versus my brother. And, and he always felt that I was the bigger sister. And, um, and he would tell me to tell my brother, who's only one year younger than I am, instructions that he wanted to give him. It was a weird communication pattern. So, but I think what I took that away is my parents, um, the, the way that my parents brought me up was kind of the way that I'm bringing my children up as well. You know, whether they are boys or girls, they can, they can also be a, a leader in themselves. And, and strangely, yesterday, my eldest, who's just eight and a half, actually told me, you know, hey, mom, I really feel that girls can do anything. We were just taking a stroll, you know, by the park and the reservoir, right? I said, you know, I can tell you, you know, girls can conquer the world. I don't know where she got that from, but she was reading this magazine, you know, um, and, and she just told that to me. I didn't tell her anything, but, um, but she kind of feels empowered. And I really feel that it's because she sees mommy walking the talk and talking the talk. And, you know, and therefore it is important for moms, you know, for women in general, whether you're married with kids or not, to really be leading the way by being yourself. You know, and so the and the generations after you will feel empowered because they see a more senior woman, right? Hey, she can do this, you know, she can do this. I mean, she has other things to look after, but she's able to develop 360 of herself as well. Yeah. Okay. And, and of course, I, I guess you're part of YPO. How has, how has that association helped you in, in your business and running the food bank? I think sometimes when we become more, um, when we climb up um, the ranks, uh, and as you grow older, you know, a little bit more mature as CEOs, business owners, it can get a bit lonely sometimes where you really want to talk about simple stuff, right? Like, you know, of course you have your girl pals and your friends, but how YPO, um, um, to be perfectly honest, I doubted the system when I first joined. You know, they always say, what's this uniquely in YPO kind of uh, experience, right? I, I didn't catch any ball, but um, to me, my forum mates provided that um, that that security blanket that I guess I was craving for. So I've, I've been in my forum for two and a half years already. Uh, and um, they allowed me this secure environment once a month where we would check in and we would download all the stuff that we need to download. And I think the most important thing is that we do not see each other with tinted glasses. Yeah, and, and, and actually within the women ourselves, right, you know, uh, we have a lot of women CEOs amongst our mix, not just in Singapore, Southeast Asia. We have kind of connected on different occasions as well. 
And it's, it's, it was important to see that uh, because we have YPO goal also. So we, you see actually women leaders that are older than us, you know, making their mark and leaving their mark as well. And we also have the YNGers where we also see younger female leaders emerging as well. So I think even within the YPO community, we ourselves can strengthen uh, our mentality over um, providing equal opportunities for other women leaders. And despite most YPO members coming from more privileged environments, it doesn't always necessarily mean that they have it easy. Yeah, in fact, sometimes the expectations may be more. And so how can we be here to help our YNGers or fellow YPO members um, and just to give them a hand as well. So I think the YPO network is is important in terms of strengthening uh, even women's uh, presence in the business network. Right. Uh, this is uh, my, my final question to you. And this is uh, still back to the YPO study, right? And it's just the biggest challenges all global leaders currently face are uh, navigating, communicating, constant change, uh, staying ahead of the competition and competing priorities, right? So this there's some figures rather. Now, how... how you know, it's challenging in normal times. How has the pandemic made it more challenging, in your opinion? And, and what, what do you do around these uh, these, these uh, issues? Yeah. Um, I've shared this on many occasions, and I've shared this here as well. Um, as women, we're blessed with a sixth sense. <laughs> and I think in times where nobody has a crystal ball to know what the future is going to be like, um, and over over-emphasis on tech, right, where everyone is like predicting on data and things like that, it is very important for us to deep, dig very deep inside and find the solutions within us and look towards our EQ in developing the solutions for the future as well. So I think nowadays, um, I mean, whether is it with AI, predictability, with tech, you know, like how we're recording this interview right now, there's too much predictability that everyone is, is thinking that there can be there. But pan the pandemic has actually shown us that nothing is predictable. And one simple virus can put everything out of whack. And, and so as women leaders and as women, as a species, right? So let us dig within ourselves to find that special potion, as we say, you know, and, and rely on it when times go um, difficult. And when the waters are very murky or too choppy, Let's keep that stability by sometimes taking a minute to just, you know, digest what we have in our minds and, do, and don't lose track on, on what your sixth sense tell you because sometimes that may be the way to go. Right, right. I know that I said it's the last question, but, you know, you, uh, I'm just very interested to know what, uh, what, how you're communicating with your team, whether it's with the Food Bank Singapore, with your exing group. Like, I think that, that giving them that assurance, so to speak, yeah. So once um, I, I remembered, um, I recorded uh, a video in April, May last year, which I shared with my entire team and I had tears in my eyes. I really, I really did tell them because I'm in a business where our customers are badly affected, right? All the F&B outlets and things like that. But I told them that we've survived the last 80 years and as the leader at the top, I will ensure that this legacy will continue for the next 100 years as long as, you know, your livelihoods are not affected, we will be here to support you through these difficult times. And the other thing that I did as well was to share with them that there was not going to be any pay cuts. There wasn't um, going to be, you know, any uh, no pay leave, you know, kind of thing. It was very important to make everybody feel assured and secure. And the other thing also is we also reached out to them in case their families were affected. 
how can we support them, right? So, I mean, while they have a job, maybe their spouse or their sisters or siblings may be losing their jobs as well. So as, as a company, we became the extended family. And, and as a family business, we've always treated our employees, whether it's at the food bank or, you know, at Exing, as an extended family of, uh, you know, of, of what we do, right? So I think um, we re-emphasize on that thought and we shared with them the honest truth that it was going to be tough. It was going to be difficult, but we also told them it was going to be hell of a journey and we're going to have fun to get out of this as well. All right. I've been speaking to Nicole Ng, CEO of Exxon Group and the Food Bank Singapore. Thanks for being with us. You've been listening to Enterprise BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.